RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is the Chantal Show. Last week, I introduced you to two very interesting politicians from the Netherlands. Talked about globalism, talked about where politicians fall short, why it is that so many of them seem so woefully inadequate when it comes to doing their job. And this week, I thought we'd go over to Australia. These are two interviews that we've previously done here at operationpeople.com. And one of them is a man called Senator Gerard Rennick. He's a Liberal Party senator over in Australia. And he is a really interesting academic. He completed his education in Toowoomba before moving to Brisbane, where he did a Bachelor of Commerce. He also has a Master's degree in Taxation Law and a Master's degree in Applied Finance. He has been a Liberal Senator since the 2019 election, and he's spoken out for many years on what is happening in Australian politics, particularly in terms of freedom of choice. But he also talks a lot about the financial decisions that are going on in Australia and why it seems so dangerous to the Australian people. And much of what he says is very, very similar to what is going on here in New Zealand. So... Without further ado, I introduce you to Senator Gerard Rennick. We're sitting here with Senator Gerard Rennick, and thank you so much for joining us all the way from Queensland. I really appreciate you giving your time and energy to speak with us back here in New Zealand. Uh, You're welcome, Chantelle, and it's uh, good to be here. So you've got a really amazing background as well. I'm just going to read off a few things for people watching at home. So you have a Bachelor of Commerce from the the University of Queensland. You've got a Master's in Taxation Law from the Uni of Sydney and a Master's degree in Applied Finance from Finja. You also have 25 years experience in finance. That's pretty phenomenal. And I know you've spoken up a lot about multiple things over in Queensland and around Australia, all the way from the freedoms and the rights of the people of Australia when it comes to COVID, right through to all the taxes and then climate change and and immigration. You've got a really broad spectrum and you have been labelled a lot in terms of different ways for thinking outside of the box. What first made you decide to start speaking out when it came to these really controversial topics? Have you always been quite an outspoken person? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I grew up on a farm and, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm an accountant who generally stayed in the back office um, and probably the most I spoke up, when I, you know, when I was out having drinks um, on a Friday night, so to speak. So, and, and quite frankly, I don't like speaking up. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it's not something that, you know, comes naturally to me. I'd honestly rather be down the paddock talking to myself, um, you know, or, or, you know, hanging out with my kids or something like that. But I, I feel as though, once you become a politician, that it's very important that you represent the views of your constituents. Uh, so I'm in the coalition here in Australia. Um, so I'm, you know, what they call conservative side of politics. I don't like to use the word conservative. Um, I'd like to, you know, it's it's a combination of, you know, like our values, for example, the party I'm in, you know, it's, it's the dignity and worth of every individual, the freedom of conscience, uh, reward for effort protecting the environment uh, and small government. So they're some of our values. Uh, so I, I guess I speak out to try and um, represent those values uh, in the main. Um, look, the reason why I ran for politics, though, is, is that I wanted to make sure that our children get the same opportunities that our forefathers gave to us, and I know that would apply likewise in New Zealand, which is a very beautiful country with, you know, very 
wealthy country uh, that, you know, has got its wealth through hard work. Um, I want to stand up for Australians who try to stand up for themselves. And I want to bring back the notion that governments are responsible for the provision of essential services and not over-regulating individual lives. I mean, there's no greater minority than the individual, uh, and that is who we have to protect the most in conjunction with the social contract, which, you know, I accept is, is where, you know, government should be building roads and dams uh, and bridges and things like that. Uh, I'm not sure of, you know, the privatisation agenda that went on in New Zealand in the last 40 years, but I know over here in Australia we have sold a lot of infrastructure assets, uh, both to superannuation funds and to foreign investors, and as a result it becomes very difficult to hold uh, people to account who provide those essential services. Uh, at the same time, we've got a bureaucracy and we have unfortunately a thing called states here in Australia as well as the federal government uh, that's marched on in the family home, the classroom, the bedroom, corporate boardroom via superannuation. Uh, and in the last three years, now the doctor's waiting room uh, through through mandating uh, medical procedures, which I just think is a complete violation of civil liberties. There's so much to unpack in all of that. <laughs> I would yeah, love no, to start, but I completely, I, I mean, I, there's nothing that you said there that I could possibly disagree with because it's common sense. However, I'm sure there'll be other things we might disagree on, but everything you just listed out there, I, can, I do agree with. If we take it back to superannuation, what do you think would work better for Australia and probably for New Zealand as well? We've got KiwiSaver over here. What kind of model do you think would be a lot more functional considering this is such an area of expertise for you? Well, look, I, I think people have to save their own retirement and, you know, depending on their, um, you, know, you know, how much wealth they have when they retire, then they are, if they don't have enough to retire on, they get the pension. Um, so I, I do believe in a strong uh, and healthy pension, you know, that's going to cover the cost of living and a bit more uh, because people pay taxes throughout their lives and a part of those taxes should be for the pension. Um, the, the situation here in Australia, I'm not sure if you're aware, but we have tax concessions over here for superannuation and it costs the budget about $40 billion and most of those tax concessions go to the top 20% of earners. So the people who are getting the tax concessions are the people that don't need you know, support in retirement anyway because they're, they're in the you know, top echelon of income income earners. Uh, and the other thing is now we, we have an army of superannuation specialists, financial planners, fund managers, et cetera, et cetera, that costs, it costs, it's estimated to cost about 30 to $40 billion, I mean, you know, estimates vary, uh, in, in paperwork and paper shuffling, et cetera, and in fees, et cetera, to manage superannuation. And none of that actually creates any genuine wealth. For example, I think, you know, the, the cost of superannuation is about just a little bit less than the cost of uh, our military, for example. Um, and, you know, you just imagine how many dams or, or roads or power stations you could build with $30 billion. So we're, we're pulling out, I'm not sure of the numbers who work in superannuation, but we're probably pulling out 30 to 40, 50,000 people um, out, out of the economy into a paper shuffling role that doesn't actually produce goods and services. So it's, I think it's a drain on productivity as well. Do you think there needs to be a lot more education in general across Australia for kids when it comes to investments and what investments should look like, what makes a healthy investment and actually go through it from an educational perspective? Well, look, I mean, it's been a long time since I was at school, but, you know, when I went through school, you know, maths and uh, was compulsory. So, well, you know, you, you did science up until grade 10 at least, but then a lot of students went on and did a math science dream. You know, we had subjects like business principles and accounting. Um, if, the, if all those subjects are there and encouraged and made compulsory for, 
you know, X number of years, at least throughout junior high school, you may want to specialise as you go into senior. Um, I, I think that should cover it. But as well as that too, you should learn from your parents as well. Some of this stuff, you know, I mean, I grew up on the farm. I saw my mum go to work. She was a nurse. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know how, I mean, I suppose I did have a bit of a mathematical bent. But, um, you know, for me, it was always about, um, you know, it should just come naturally as a survival instinct is to, you know, basically make sure you've got enough to live on. And, and that's a combination, I guess, of family values and, and a good education system. I think that's probably part of the problem, though, because when you talk about a good education system, the levels of children, the IQ levels of children worldwide are dropping continually year on year. And it does seem like education is shifting away from the fundamental core values into teaching more ideological values. Have you seen that shift in Australia? Do you think that's a productive shift? Um, Well, look, it's hard to say, um, you know, exactly what goes on in education because I've been out of it for so long and my my children have only just, I'm an old dad, so I've got some young children. But um, look, look, I I think things like ideology, um, you know, and I don't really want to get sort of too ideological here, but, um, you know, a lot of the identity politics does not belong in the classroom. Let's put it that way, right? They're the they're there to me. There should be family values, and 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 the classroom needs to focus on those basic subjects. You know, English, mathematics, science, geography, history, um, sport. You know, learning how to interact with others. Um, so so in the main, yeah. I mean, there is no substitute for data um, and understanding empirical science um, and the world around us, and that's that's you know. That's what's got, you know, the Western world. Well, it's got, you know, that's probably not a fair statement. That's, that's what's got the world where it is today um, it, it is through, you know, the rigorous application of, um, you know, science, you know, empirical data and maths and English and, and learning, you know, core skills, those core skills as, as a child. When it comes to empirical data and the sciences, when did you, when did you start to question some of the government decisions when it came to mandates and when it came to the COVID conversation in general? What was your turning point? Well, look, I was always sceptical. I'm not sure how it worked out in New Zealand, but um, I was told very early on that you can, you can tell the severity of a disease uh, by the average age of death. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a very simple, you know, that's oversimplified, but as a general rule of thumb, and that was told to me by a couple of medical experts who knew what they were talking about. Uh, and so the average age of death from COVID early on in Australia was about the average age of life expectancy. Um, and it was very apparent early on that people of the working age, you know, healthy people of working age were not particularly vulnerable to COVID. And the numbers, if you compared it to the overall mortality rate, the case fatality rate, not the and this, so this is not the infection fatality rate, was lower um, for, you know, COVID in, in the healthy working age population than what, you know, the overall mortality rate was. So um, I just felt there's a fair bit of overkill um, and, and particularly because we do have states over here, we had, you know, premiers getting up, one premier getting up at 9 o'clock in the morning, another at 10 o'clock, another 11 o'clock, you know, one of the other small states doing one at 12 o'clock. Um, giving press conferences, giving us COVID numbers ad nauseum, even though throughout the early stages, well, for the first two years of the pandemic, basically until late last year, um, we were having, you know, case numbers in single digits or very low case numbers. And we went here in Queensland, for example, we went for about three or four months where we had no COVID cases uh, and the Queensland Premier kept doing daily press conferences 
uh, and, and, you know, informing us if COVID was found in the sewage, you know, at a particular spot in Queensland. And it was sort of like, you know, how hard do these, these people want to keep the fear, fear-mongering going? Um, but, you know, it, it was just, look, look, I mean, as a general premise, the idea that we, you know, the government can control um, the transmission of an airborne um, respiratory disease uh, is, quite frankly, I felt, you know, almost impossible. Uh, and by all means, you know, protect the sick and the vulnerable and the older people, you know, old, you know uh, older people. But I, I could, you know, I, I, my view was you should know, destroy the strong to protect the weak. Um, so, you know, look, look, there was just a general cynicism, I guess, that the overkill by politicians um, combined with a bit of, you know, real-world evidence uh, and as, as well as the fact that, well, how long are we planning to kick the road down? you know, kick the can down the road full. And over here they kept changing the rules all the time, you know. At first when we shut down, I think in the two weeks in April 2020 or late March, early April 2020, it was two weeks to flatten the curve. And that, that effectively became two years to flatten the curve. Um, so that was very frustrating as well. And and obviously, you know, all, all the side impacts of, you know, shut, shutting down, destroying livelihoods, you know, the alcoholism that comes from being unemployed, uh, suicides, mental health issues, you know, other, other chronic diseases that weren't picked up, that was all completely ignored. And interestingly enough, here in Australia, our overall deaths, overall deaths in 2020 in the year of the lockdown were about 162,000. It jumped to, by about 8,700 to 171,000 last year in 2021. So that's that's very interesting because despite the fact that there were more lockdowns in Australia in 2021, we had a jump of over 8,500 uh, yeah, of eight and a half thousand deaths. What is um, it attributed to? Do you know? Well, well, no, they haven't attributed it to anything. You can go through uh, and try and look at the breakdown. There was a slight decrease. I'm going off the top of my head. There was a jump in cancer of about two thousand, a jump in uh, dementia of about two thousand, and then there were other not specifically listed causes of about four thousand. And I'm waiting on the Australian Bureau of Statistics to give me a breakdown of those codes that get went into not specifically listed because I'm curious to know why that figure would have jumped so high because that would have included things like accidents, um, uh, car accidents, workplace accidents. And, and I know that the car accidents didn't go up because the road tolls reported. Um, so it didn't go up by much. I think it might have went up by one or 200 people, which was a long way short of the 4,000. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still waiting to get a breakdown on what that non other uh, un, unknown, um, not unknown, sorry, not specifically listed causes are. Mm. So that's interesting. So there's a huge jump in all cause mortality, but no breakdown of where that's come from. So it's not attributed to COVID at all. Oh well, sorry. So so there were 900 deaths in 2020 from COVID and 1300 in 2021. So there was a jump of 400 deaths, uh, which is obviously still a long way short of the 8,700. But mm. there was also, uh, I think. Just under two thousand for diabetes and cancer as well. Uh, not not diabetes, dementia. Sorry, um, and then respiratory disease dropped off a bit. Even though if you added the COVID deaths in, because they're not can't they counted separately, of course, because God forbid we actually treat it like every other respiratory disease. So it's got its own line item. If you add COVID in, the respiratory disease, the overall respiratory disease number didn't actually jump at all. Um, so there's about. You know, of that 8,700 increase, there's about 4,500, I think, off the top of my head, 
uh, that I still haven't got a breakout for. But even the cancer and the dementia numbers were up quite a lot. Um, you know, and by a lot, I mean about 13% in their categories. So, you know, was that a result of delayed treatments from the lockdowns or was that, you know, someone's, an older person's taken a vaccine, had a stroke, uh, and they've, they've, they've called that dementia rather than, you know, vaccine injury? Um, you know, it's hard to tell. Are you seeing much of, are you seeing much good data and strong data coming through when it comes to injuries in terms of actually understanding how many that they, there are? Do you guys have a good system for allocating that and for understanding that? Or is it really, because ours is voluntary here in New Zealand, and so it's very difficult to actually get a gauge on how many people have been injured, if the number's low, if it's really high. And then our doctors are being pressured here that if they speak out and say that they think it's an injury, they can actually lose their jobs. Okay, so, yeah, I, I think we have a similar thing here in Australia where it's a passive surveillance system whereby you, if you've had an injury, you report it. Um, we've had about 130,000 uh, reported cases of COVID, uh, sorry, reported ca- ca- vaccine injuries, reported and suspected, I might add. So there's a box you tick um, that, you know, that the person can say, do you suspect it was the vaccine? And so it's, it's reported and suspected. Um, now, you know, as the TGA, our Therapeutic Goods Association, will tell us over here, that doesn't mean to say it was caused by the vaccine. And, yes, I, on, on first principles, I agree that as well, with that as well. You know, um, unfortunately, they what they don't do is give a breakdown of how quickly that um, adverse event happened after the vaccine. Um, and and it's disputed, um, you know, for example, our, our TGA will only recognise or, 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 you know, take seriously those adverse events that Pfizer have recognised as a side effect, uh, effect from the vaccine, which, of course, is extremely narrow compared to what, you know, the post-marketing surveillance data showed of, you know, over a 1,000 different injury types. So um, we also have another uh, um, agency called Ausvax, I think it is off the top of my head, and they have an active surveillance system. You can indicate um, whether or not you want to be followed up uh, for a vaccine injury. And they've reported out of 6 million people have reported there, 40% have reported some type of adverse event. Yeah, so about 2.4 wait, million. Wait, what? Wait. But, but they're not all serious. Sorry, I just, that, that blew my mind. 40% out of 6 million people that have been followed up have reported an injury. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that's mild. So they're not all serious. One okay. 1% of that is, is counted as serious. So like they've said, where they've either had to go to a doctor or GP because of that, uh, but that's only at day three. So I've spoken to lots of people, for example, who haven't started. So that's on the, the third day after the vaccine. So um, uh, th- that then to me still underestimates the number because a lot of people don't have you know serious side effects until after day three of their vaccine. And, and often, even if you did start to feel a little bit off, you, you may w- wait a few days before you go and see the doctor or go to the GP uh, just to be sure, you know, which way it's going to go. So either way, um, you know, so that 130,000 um, uh, adverse events through the TGA is out of 20 million people. Um, so they like to count doses. I, I disagree with uh, using the denominator as the, uh, the dose figure as the denominator because if you've got to get three shots in six months, that's still one treatment of the vaccine as far as I'm concerned. I mean, my idea of a vaccine was, and I mean, this was, you know, sort of all adds to the, you know, the, the cynicism or the scepticism, I guess, 
in what's going on is that, you know, my idea of a vaccine and, you know, I, I was fully vaccinated when I was a child. I got heaps of vaccinations for Africa, South America, Central Asia when I went through those countries, as well as whooping cough and whatnot, you know, um, when we had our children. So, you know, you take a vaccine and it lasts for something like 10 years. I mean, it, it should provide long-term immunity. If you have to take something that, you know, you've got to get a booster every three months, that to me is more like a treatment. Um, rather than an actual vaccine or a preventative. So, um, yeah, so so that and, – and overall, that number from the TGA, the number of adverse injury reports, is about five times all other vaccines reported to the TGA since 1971. Um, so, you know, the injury – reported injury rate is much, much higher for this vaccine. Why do you for, think they are ignoring that data and why do you think they don't care? Because to me, it's a product just like everything else is a product. If it's causing issues, then you go and you change the product and you reevaluate it and you fix it and you make it better. You don't argue that the product's perfect the way it is when there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people complaining about it or saying that there's a question that they have with it. Why do you think they've protected this particular product to the extremes that they have? No, it's regulatory capture. I mean, effectively, the TGA collect, you know, earn, you know, that they are funded effectively by the pharmaceutical companies uh, and the products they put to them for application. So um, the the other thing is, like, they took a lot of shortcuts, both Pfizer and the TGA, in approving this. They rushed it out, right? And and this is the thing. It, it's it's bad enough, you know. Like, I mean, I don't know that you could ever tolerate that injury rate, to be honest, but. You know, if it's something like Ebola or something whereby the mortality rate was 10% of the population, you know, you'd probably go, okay, well, 1% of the population being injured is better than a mortality rate of 10% of people being killed. But the mortality rate here in Australia is less than 1% of people who catch it, right? Not it, And so that excludes asymptomatic and people who don't bother reporting it to the government. So the infection rate is actually, you know, when you times the case fatality rate by the infection rate, it's much, much lower. Um, and, and certainly for people under 65 or 60, you know, the, the, the case fatality rate is one in 10,000. So um, that's what it makes it worse is that, you know, in, in many, in many, you know, the, 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 it does more harm than good in my view, uh, the vaccine. So, but look, why, why they don't do something about it, you know, look, it's, unfortunately it's the age we live in whereby, um, you know, people find it very difficult to admit they got it wrong. Um and, I mean, and, and there's nothing wrong with, like, 12 months ago, maybe 15 months ago, you know, my view was, well, look, you know, the, the world's been, you know, panicked by COVID. I always thought it was a bit of an overreaction, but that's okay. Um, by all means, roll out a vaccine and give it a go. Um, because it's an RNA virus, it's a single-strand virus, it always mutates quite quickly. So I was of the view it was never going to be a silver bullet over the long term. But, you know, if it helped, you know, to um, get people through that initial wave, um, then so be it. But it, it quickly became apparent, um, I'll say quickly, it took me probably five months after the rollout when I started getting contacted by younger people who, so I'll just give you one week, I had a 30-year-old contact me who took the AZ shot on Friday, sick over the weekend and was paralysed down his right-hand side by Tuesday. Um, didn't, wasn't contacted by Queensland Health for six weeks. And when he was, all they said was, well, you need to get your second dose. And he'd said, well, I'm actually paralysed from the first dose down my right-hand side. Um, they said, it doesn't matter. You've still got to get a second dose. 
Uh, and he he obviously um, was working, had a mortgage, you know, had had a child to help raise, had no financial support. The second one was a 37-year-old police officer from WA, fit as a fiddle, uh, you know, took the jab, was crook 15 minutes after, went to the doctor about three or four times over two weeks. In the third week, she had a stroke down her, uh, I think it was her right-hand side, uh, and you can see photos of her face where it's crooked. Uh, and then the other, uh, and then that weekend, at the end of the week, I was contacted uh, by an 18 year old girl uh, or a mother of an 18 year old girl who ended up uh, getting kicked out of hospital the first time and the second time. And eventually, you know, mum went back on the third visit. Turns out she had three clots on her lungs. Um, so when I started getting. I, I, I know it's AstraZeneca as well. That one's being pulled from, is it 20 countries due to the clotting that it causes? I'm not sure the details of what countries it's been pulled from, but yeah, it definitely causes clotting. And and the, the, the stories I get with the AZ ones are generally they tend to be much more dramatic and, and sudden, so people are having heart attacks or just dying. Um, and, and and it's as late as up to two months afterwards. Um, uh, I mean that's obviously antidotal, of course. Uh, but whereas the Pfizer one, there's all sorts of um, weird, you know, weird and you know dramatic um, adverse events from the Pfizer uh, dose. Um, that yeah, in itself, yeah, it's not just the quantity of injuries that's the problem; it's the breadth of injuries and the different types of injuries. I mean, we've got heart issues, we've got you know uh, neurological issues, we've got people getting becoming blind, uh, having uh, hearing issues. You know, their skin's breaking out, and these you know horrendous looking rashes. Uh, people with severe headaches, strokes. Uh, you know, what could be um, you know severe brain injuries. Um, so. That in itself is a worry as well because it's going to be very hard to identify what the cause is. Um, well, well, I suspect we know what the cause is in the sense that because the, the spike protein goes throughout the entire body, it's a bit of a uh, lottery as to which part of the body organ, you know, some people, you know, it, it, it ends up in and then that's when the immune system starts attacking your own body organs, which becomes a problem, but, yeah. What has the reaction been like with other members of parliament when it came to the mandates and the human rights conversation, was there a really distinct split between um, people that were pro and people that weren't? Was it quite 50-50 or was it very much, you know, 99% of the people were in favour of it? Well, politically speaking, um, I'd say 90% of the politicians went along with it uh, and, and probably less than 10% spoke out about it. Uh, I'd say I've got a few of my colleagues who weren't comfortable with the mandates, but at the same time didn't really go hard on speaking out against it. And of course, we've got this you know crazy government system here in Australia, whereby the premier, yeah, there's a constant argy bargy between the prime minister and the states as to who's in charge, who's responsible, whose fault it is. Um, so it was as usual, you know. And this just isn't when it comes to COVID. This is the the, the you know the um, mess, the dog's breakfast of Australian governments is this constant fight between the federal and state governments, which is just really destructive across all all departments, not just health. Mm. I mean, we, we didn't get heaps of information over here about the different premiers, but I know a lot of people talked about Dan Andrews from Victoria. Him, he became quite notorious and I'd say probably one of the most hated men in Australia for a long, for a long time there, just due to some of the draconian measures he had placed over Victoria. What were some of the measures like that the Premier put over Queensland? Uh, well, we weren't as locked down um, as much as other states were. So uh, Victoria was locked down, I'll stand to be corrected on this, both years throughout their winter, winter months for around one to two months. 
New South Wales was locked down for about three months last year. Um, but the impact on Queensland and WA, you know, the smaller states, wasn't we had we did have lockdowns, but they weren't as long and they weren't as severe. But the impact was on people that couldn't come home. So the, at the end of last year, for example, there are about three uh, thousand Queenslanders living just south, you know, camping out just south of the New South Wales border. They couldn't come back into the state, even though they didn't have COVID. So we were locking people out of our own state, um, you know, who who had houses in Queenslanders. You know, they were Queenslanders; they couldn't even come home. How did um, we were locking out. What's that? Sorry. How did they get away with that illegally, with with creating such strict borders around each state? Well, well, blame the High Court of Australia. They they overruled the the section of the Constitution that says there's meant to be free intercourse amongst the states. I mean, it's explicitly written in the Constitution. But yet somehow our High Court judges interpreted that, you know, if you had a virus uh, and they relied, you wouldn't believe it, on a, on a lobster case years gone by about free trade between South Australia and Victoria or something um, a, a, as their precedent. I mean, it was just an incredible decision. But this was the power, of course, you know, and influence of the media today. Um, you know, lo, lo and behold, anyone that speaks out against the narrative, it is very difficult to put an alternative point of view, you know, a counter-narrative, up against the, the, the mainstream narrative. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd argue, um, you know, the, the high court judges have been impacted by that as well. But, yeah, I mean, that was just absurd. But we, we had other situations whereby, you know, um, you know, there were people killed in car accidents where their brother or sister might have lived in Sydney and wanted to come home for the funeral, but weren't allowed in. You know, other situations where people's parents were dying, you know, the son or, or daughter wanted to come back from another state or from overseas, no, can't come in. Um, oh, oh, like, I mean, you know, it, it's just unreal. I, I just, you know, I, I still can't get over it now, um, how, how bad the parent, fear and paranoia became. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is the Chantal Baker Show and today we are talking with Australians about what is happening in Australia and why it can impact New Zealand. Our interview continues with Senator Gerard Rennick who has his Masters in Taxation Law. He also has a Masters degree in Applied Finance and he's been a Senator in Australia speaking out about the Liberal Party decisions since 2019. So back to Senator Gerard Rennick. The media has so much to answer for and how they constantly flip-flop between the advice, especially now that it's coming, the fear from COVID has started to wear off a lot. They're now just scrambling for anything else they can throw at people to keep this in, them in this perpetual state of fear and anxiety. We had a really big protest here in Wellington. It lasted for 23 days. Um, and I live-streamed a lot of that and as did other people, but it went it blew up some of the live streams because it showed that the media were lying. And because we're quite a small country, it did make quite a big impact on how people view the media. And we they recently did a poll. I think trust in media is down to about 40% here in New Zealand. So that's the one positive that I take out of all of this is people are starting to question, at least here, the media motives and the media narratives. And then they're getting paid off, of course, through public interest journalism funds and the mass, um, mass advertising and it just seems like the decline of the fourth estate is prevalent right now across both countries. Oh, absolutely, yeah, except I wouldn't call it the, the, the decline of the fourth estate. I'd, I'd say it's almost the ascent of the fourth estate where they just have complete and utter control over the narrative 
Um, and if you don't, I mean, I, I've, I've sort of done very little mainstream media since I started to speak out against the vaccines. Um, and I, I can't prove this, but I suspect, uh, you know, it, it's because they're worried that I'm, I'm not going to say what they, they want to hear. Um, you know, then that's how they control you is, is that they just don't give you any airtime at all. Mm. Um, See, I've I've had I've had a number of people reach out, um, media here in New Zealand for interviews. But the way I see it, I'm like, I'm just helping you sell a story because you're going to take anything I say, twist it to your agenda, and then make a profit off that. And why should I help you make a profit? You're the one that needs stories, <laughs> you know, not me. I mean, that's just my inner cynical and cynicism coming out. But I just don't. I'm just tired of people giving them stories to begin with. Like if everyone stopped giving them your personal story, they don't have a media. They don't have a media company anymore. Yeah, I mean, I the only problem is though that I'll still get the 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 other side of the story from you know the people. You know, let's call them the command and control crowd. Um, so I still go out and try and put my view across. Um, if I get the opportunity, because I think it's always important to to take whatever. I mean, there's a vacuum. There's a 24-hour day. You know, there's a news bulletin every hour. If, if not, you know, you've got to remember that not everyone believes the media, and they may not know. Um, you know, they may not be aware of me, for example. I mean, I've only been in politics for three years, mm-hmm. so any opportunity that you can put the counter narrative across, people will go, "Oh, well, I didn't realise that person had that view, and I actually agreed with that person." Uh, so now they might start to follow you. So, look, I, I know what you're saying and, and I have my days where I feel like, you know, why bother? They're only going to, you know, do the pile on. But, you know, in, in my role, I feel it's my duty to, you know, put that counter-narrative across uh, and stand up for the values that I said I would when I ran for politics. Speaking of counter-values, when it came to immigration, I think you said something like it can be it's worse for Australia then climate change. This is going back a couple of years ago. What did yeah. you mean? What did you mean by those comments? Sure. So basically, we've got in Sydney and Melbourne, we've got what I consider overcrowding um, and the lack of infrastructure. So we, we've had a, a jump in population from 19 million to 25 million people in the 20 years since the turn of the century, but we haven't had an increase of about. So it's about an increase in population of about 30 percent. We haven't had an increase of 30% in essential services uh, from the government. So we're bringing in uh, immigrants, and a lot of these, and, and a lot of that was directed at what we have uh, people on temporary visas who come over, they're students, um, they'll, they'll go to universities in the city and then they'll go back home. But we need to make sure that we don't let the, the stand. And, and, that, and, that, and that big increase in population, it serves the corporate masters very well because it's a lazy way of increasing their top line, increasing revenue. But the corporations don't want to pay tax or anything, so the government's left to foot the bill, and they can't foot the bill, uh, you know, because of a lot of wastage and whatever. So basically, our services are falling behind our, our population, and if we want to grow the population, we've also got to grow infrastructure with it. With population control, we know birth rates are at an all-time low for a lot of Western countries. Do you see the government trying to improve that in any way? Because it seems like the foundation of a functional society is making sure that you've got enough people to make it sustainable, and yet they don't seem to care. It seems like they just, it's a topic that never even comes to the forefront of everyone's mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, don't give a lot of thought to that myself, to be honest with you. Um, you know, pe- people all have, you know, the children, I guess, based on their livelihoods and their lifestyles and, you know, um, you know, you know, 
when they find the right, you know, person or whatever. Um, uh, look, you know, and it's not like I don't have a problem with immigration. It's the rate of immigration that's issue, right? It's just like, you know, I love beer, but you go and knock back 10 beers in two hours, probably not a good idea. Um, so um, it, it's, it's, I guess it's all about a sustainable lifestyle and, and basically if you are going to increase the population is, is to make sure you, you know, um, you know, provide those essential services and don't let them fall behind whilst also, you know, looking after your, your, your environment. You made a number of comments being detrimental about climate change in general. Where do you think we go wrong with our understanding of climate change and how we treat the environment in general? Well, well, that's a very good question. So there's climate change and then there's the environment, right? And the environment, climate change is a very small part of the environment. So, you know, when it comes to like cleaning up plastic, uh, protecting our biodiversity, uh, especially here in Australia where we've got a lot of marginal soils and you know, a big part of the middle of Australia is uh, very dry and arid. Um, I'm I'm extremely passionate about. I mean, I spent you know seven years overseas uh, in my twenties. I actually quit my job uh, in my late twenties to go backpacking around the world. You know, and, and you know, climb mountains and scuba dive and surf and ski and whatever. Um, so love the environment, want to protect the environment, but I don't believe that the climate change. I, I think there's too much hysteria around climate change, and yes, the climate's been changing. You know, it's been warming for 20,000 years. It's called the Holocene period. Um, but a lot of the garbage that they go on with climate change uh, is junk science uh, and there's a complete absence of fact. So, you know, thermodynamics is the true study of heat. It was the root, you know, and that's been around for 200 years. Um, you know, heat itself uh, is kinetic energy, the energy in motion. So heat, for example, does not get trapped. It's an oxymoron to say that heat gets trapped in the atmosphere. Um, there is no greenhouse, there's no glass ceiling up in the atmosphere. A greenhouse traps convection, it doesn't trap radiation, right? So, you know, people, a lot of people don't understand the difference between radiation, convection, and conduction. Um, you know, if you read Einstein's 1917 paper, uh, quant- uh, his theory on uh, quantum uh, on radio- quantum theory on radiation, as he says at the end of the paper, he says radiation is so small when it comes to uh, energy transfer, it basically drops out. And the two big drivers of energy in the atmosphere basically convection uh, and to a lesser extent conduction. So, yeah, there's all these scientific um, points that are completely overlooked. And and the proposed solution, which is more wind farms, uh, solar panels, uh, which, you know, all that material is not recyclable, um, as opposed to carbon dioxide, which is recyclable throughout, you know, uh, can be recycled through the atmosphere. Um, So, I think that there's a lot of uh, deliberate misinformation around the whole net zero climate change thing that's designed to, you know, by vested interests um, so they can, you know, pocket money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, my issue is that I don't think the climate changing, and, and I don't think it's changing to the degree they're saying it is either, but, um, uh, you know, th- there's bigger issues to worry about in terms of protecting our environment than the actual climate change one. When it comes to renewable energy, what would work? Do you think it's a combination? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about a combination between smaller nuclear reactors and solar and different mixes of what we can look at. Has there any research that you've seen that you think you think could actually work for different parts of Australia? Well, look, I mean, I mean I'm a big fan of hydro energy uh, and we don't have a lot of it here in Australia. We could have a, a, a fair bit more. There's some some big rivers on the east coast of Australia, especially in North Queensland, that are quite capable 
of delivering large amounts of hydro energy. So I'm a bit, you know, that that's a genuine renewable energy source. That, but yet again, um, you know, the people who scream the loudest about climate change, the Greens and the left, aren't interested in hydro energy. And and the, and the other energy I do support is nuclear energy, which is baseload. It's not renewable. However, you know, it, you only use a very small amount of uranium um, to get a lot of energy, so it's very energy efficient. So, you know, personally, and, I, and, I, and this was my view last year when we signed up to net zero, I, I didn't agree that we signed up to net zero. Um, but if we were going to do it, that we should go with nuclear energy and hydro as our means of reaching that target rather than uh, what I call, you know, rather than unreliable energy uh, through solar and wind, which then requires, you know, more transmission lines, you know, through farmland, more batteries and more, you know, which come from lithium. Uh, lithium, I don't know if you know, is a 1% ore body. So you've got to mine 100 tonnes of ore to get one tonne of lithium and it goes through a very intensive, energy-intensive um, electrolysis process to get the metal out of the ore. Um, and then on top of that, when you mine an ore body, you'll have a massive stripping ratio around that ore body because you've got to get those big trucks into the mine. So that's just lithium, for example, the same for cobalt, uh, neodymium, you know, all, all these uh, so-called rare metals. They're not necessarily that rare. They're just very thin in the Earth's crust. Are, are extremely energy intensive um, to mine and produce, and then they can't be recycled. So our Commonwealth, our CSIRO, our scientific body over here, the head of that uh, told me in estimates that it costs three times more to recycle a lithium battery than it does to make it. So in other words, it's not even economical to recycle a lithium battery that may last, you know, 10 to 15 years if you're lucky, it doesn't burn beforehand. Um, so th this is my problem with what they're calling renewables. It's, it's not renewable. The hardware part of renewables is not renewable. Sure, the, the solar, the, the sun and the wind are, um, but, you know, you, you want to use solar energy, you've got a thing called photosynthesis, which uh, turns out 800 billion tonnes of, uh, tons of carbon dioxide into oxygen every year. On, on the earth, right? So that recycles, you know, one in every four years you're recycling carbon dioxide through the atmosphere. Um, so, look, I mean, I, I grew up, we've also got my, my brother owns now a farm out in Western Queensland. We, we have solar panels out there because we're at the edge of the grid um, and that's there to power our bores and pumps. So there, there, there's places where you can use, you know, solar and wind, but they're generally, you know, it's never going to work at an industrial level. It can't be used as backup or, or baseload energy um, and, and this is the problem. It doesn't matter how much wind or solar you build, it's impossible to, to know that it's going to be there ready to go at 6 o'clock at night when peak hour kicks in. So you're always going to have some sort of backup baseload power. You know, you're always going to need that. You're always going to need batteries. Um, but in, in return for that, you're just going to get more transmission lines, more um, batteries, and then more security services. So when you have, you know, the, the, the sun crosses across the sky throughout the day and then the cloud comes underneath it, that means like the, the volatility of the frequency of the actual um, energy flow goes up and down. So you need these great big things called synchronous, uh, synchronous condensers to try and smooth out, you know, what they call frequency control. You need inertia control. Um, so there's all these other what they call security services as well. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's not as easy as people make it out to be. And with uranium, it's around a golf ball size of uranium in someone's power for their entire life. So I think people don't realise the quantity of how small you can get away with, the amount of tiny amount of energy that it takes when it comes to nuclear versus other options. People are worried about nuclear, though, and the accidents that can happen. But from what I've read, and this is a very simplistic overview, it seems like a lot of those are down to the health and safety of the plants themselves and shortcuts that have been taken. 
They're talking a lot about shutting multiple refineries around Australia. Do you think that's the right move for Australia? Uh, that's all, all refineries um, and oh, coal power fire stations, yeah. So they, they're, well, no, because we don't have base load power to replace the, the coal-powered fire stations and that's the problem um, is that we, you know, the, there's this utopian dream out there that you can replace um, user unreliable energy, can replace reliable energy, and, and it just doesn't work like that. Um, as I said, I mean, they can if they shut down another base load power station, I think, uh, I forget who said, uh, was it, so yeah, you, you learn or one in Victoria, if they shut that down, they need to replace it with another form of power that when you know you need it, you can just turn it on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't, I mean, we've already shut down a lot of coal-powered fire stations over here. And if they replace them with nuclear, um, I can live with it. I, I don't actually have a, a problem with coal. We've got the summit in Queensland, especially, we've got the highest quality coal in the world. Uh, we've built a lot of power stations on top of the coal mine. So it's what they call a, uh, a coal mouth um, powered, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, power station. Um, and effectively it, 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 it gets converted into energy straight away on top, basically literally on top of the coal mine, and it get, then gets transported through the, the poles and wires, right? So the actual, um, uh, what do you call it, the paraphernalia around converting energy, transporting energy and backup of energy is, is, is non-existent. So, I mean, back in the early 90s, I think, you know, Australia had 30 power stations on the east coast of Australia, uh, coal-powered fire stations that provided something like 80 or 90% of the energy. You know, and so that footprint was very, very small um, on the environment. But now we're going to end up with, you know, tens of thousands of acres, if not more, solar panels, you know, another tens of thousands of acres, wind farms, et cetera, transmission lines across farm. I mean, that that issue here in Australia, and I suspect it may, I'm, I'm curious to know what it's like in New Zealand of those wind farms going, transmission lines going across farmers' land. Um you know, as that, if that starts to increase exponentially, that is going to cause some real worry as well. Mm. It's a it's a very hard conversation to have. But when we are like over here, they're talking about shutting down Marston Point Refinery, or they already have shut it down, which is our only oil refinery. My issue right. is it seems like as much as I'm talking about renewables, whenever we did charge a whole lot of cars, Auckland had a big power shortage about six months ago when they said everyone came home, all the all the cars were on charge, everything like that was happening, but we don't actually have anything that is sustainable long-term and yet we're shutting our oil refinery at the same time. Why, why does the government want this to happen and why does it seem like they're rolling out the same agenda across multiple countries when it comes to the oil and gas industry? Oh, that's easy. I mean, in my view, it's the long march to the left through the through the bureaucracies, um, and these people are ideological, um, and you know they're, they're zealots who are completely divorced from reality. Um, and and you know, as I said, there's an absence of fact in these arguments, whereby they completely ignore the impact of what I call unreliables uh, or the hardware in renewables. Um, and you know, I think for them, it's all about winning the argument rather about rather than actually improving the lives of of, of their constituents. <laughs> I love how you frame things. Yes, <laughs> it's brutal. It's brutal and direct, and just what we need. And I wish that New Zealand had more people like you. I I really wish that we had men like you in New Zealand that were in our parliament because we just don't have anyone like you you said that there was about 10 percent of us of people in parliament kind of stood up against the mandates we didn't have one we didn't have one person that was in parliament that came out 
advocating against them. It was only once they were nearly dropped that some of the parties started saying, oh, you know, this is wrong. But none, none actually started at the beginning and said, hey, we shouldn't be mandating this. Why do you think, why do you think that is? Why do you think so many people are so afraid to say anything? And why do you think it seems to be men haven't stood up as much as they should have when it comes to actually protecting the rights of everybody? Well, well, um, look, there was, and I suspect it's the same in New Zealand. I mean, there was a good 18-month fear campaign about COVID, right? So every day, I mean, I suspect it's the same in New Zealand. You know, politicians would get up and, and you know, warn about the risks and dangers of COVID. And, and so, I mean, people were genuinely scared about catching COVID, right, because they've had it you know, want a better expression, shove down their throats, um, uh, you know, the, the, the fear-mongering, right? So so I don't think anyone really wanted to come out and say the mandates are over the top because, you know, no one really knew what was going to happen. Now, um, and there were probably moments, so I went to see a few medical uh, professionals and scientists and occasionally, you know, you, you'd, you might have a coffee with them over an hour, an hour and a half, and you'd, you'd sort of leave the meeting thinking, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's really this bad. And, of course... You know, it's it's this group thing where you know, um, and the public health experts, rather than what I call medical experts, you know, they all get together. They control the narrative, so it's very difficult if you're not from a, a medical background um, or a public health background to actually, you know, to speak out against it. And and you know, I suspect most New Zealand politicians, like most Australian politicians, aren't medical experts, so they're very reluctant to go and um, challenge the narrative, which is kind of understandable. I mean. Um, I, I do have a bit of cynicism about the word expert, but you know, it, it health is a, you know, health is a specialised field. So if you're not in the field, it can be difficult um, to have the confidence to to call it out. Um, I, I did a little bit of a science degree in my early 30s, so I had some understanding of biochemistry, and I also owned um, shares in uh, stocks as well, biotechnology stocks, which is why I had some understanding of the the vaccine process, and the approval process, which is why I had the confidence to call that out. Um, but, um, and then of course, so there's, you know, and all, all of those reasons are genuine. And then we've got what I call the sort of the bad reasons, but are also genuine is, is just the abuse and the vilification you get. If you speak out on any sort of narrative today and go against the mainstream, I mean, you know, you, I mean, you probably had it happen to you where, you know, you, you called all sorts of names, you know, an anti-vaxxer, climate denier, whatever it is. Um, uh, and, and that can be intimidating. I mean, I, I mean, I, I sort of, I have my days where it intimidates me more than others. Some days it doesn't intimidate me at all, but some days it does. Um, and, you know, look, when I first started, you know, the ABC over here did a three-day hit job on me when I was running for in, in the election campaign and they, you know, um, uh, you know, called me, uh, you know, right-wing nut job, um, you know, said I you know, wanted to lower taxes and all this stuff for multinationals and it was the complete opposite. What I really wanted to do is raise taxes on multinationals. Um uh, so, um, but, but they lied, uh, didn't they? I mean, I got called the head of the disinformation. Well, I was the dis, and they called it the disinformation dozen, and they put my name at the top of the most, you know, terrible people in New Zealand because I live streamed what happened at Parliament, and it made the media look bad. And I just find it hilarious. I'm like, they don't have examples of anything I've actually said. They don't have any examples, but they just label you, trotted out across every single paper and then hope that you go away. And it is, it's bullying and it's intimidation. But to me, I find it more entertaining than anything else because I'm like, this is exactly my point. You don't actually have any facts. 
You don't actually speak with any factual knowledge. You don't have any facts to present the people. You're just spurting out ideological ideas based on nothing. So yeah, I, but but you're right. It can get to you, get to you some days more than other days for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and I call it the you know the, I'll sort of break it out in a three part. You know, there's intimidation, indoctrination, and shoddy mathematical modeling. I mean, if you look <laughs> at all these, yeah, and the, you know, they like those models. They were basing a lot of their health advice on models. And even now here in Australia, they're still basing it on models, despite the fact that I think we've got over 4 million recorded COVID cases this year um, and a lot more people would have had COVID that didn't bother ringing up and letting the government know because, you know, why would you? We never did that in the past. Um, and, and you know, plenty of vaccinated people have caught COVID, um, passed it on, uh, gone to hospital and died from it, despite, you know, a year ago they were saying you won't catch it, you know, you'll stop transmission, you won't get sick and go to hospital from it. They're still saying the same things, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, but but yet again, it's just you know, if you keep repeating a lie um, long enough, people people believe it. Has there been a shift away from people that are believing some of the legacy media and over in Australia, or do you think that it's still very very deeply ingrained in people to follow? Look, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I suspect there is a shift away. Um, and it's a shame, you know, look, I mean, I don't, I don't want to undermine our health system and I don't want to undermine our government. So, I mean, I, I ran for government because I believe, you know, a good government is the best form of community service. It's, you know, ideally, you know, if we can, you know, a really good government, there would be no charities in the country because the government would be running the country so well, there would be no need you know, for charities, right? So, um, I, it's not that I'm, I'm an anarchist or, or um, and I'm not even a libertarian to the extent that most libertarians are. I've always called myself a protectionist and, and I feel the role of a politician is to protect the country and its people. Um, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, um, I forgot your question. Sorry. I mean, Do you I know what? Right. <laughs> no, no, I think, but, I think you're on yeah. a great role because you were, you were talking about how you're not an anarchist. I was just saying how I really question the media and how if the media has changed, you think the, the public sentiment has changed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I, and, and I, I like what yeah. you said just then about being a protectionist of the people. And I feel like what people have forgotten that run for parliament is that they're actually there to serve and they just seem to get this greediness take over them. And I don't know what would be a good solution to that. Would it be having shorter timeframes that they're allowed in government? Would it be not allowing allowing certain connections within government? Because how can you teach people to be less corrupt? I think corruption is the number one problem the world faces. It's not actually race. It's not ideas. It's all. It's not any of that. It's actually people being corrupt and doing it for their own benefit. But how do you mitigate that? What would that even look like? That's, that's a really good question, and I have to admit, I, I get a lot of people ask me that question, and I honestly don't know what the answer is. Um, well, well, I mean, I do know part of it is to stand up against the narrative and, and, and come back to those, those trusted things like empirical science um, and all science. If you want to follow the science, I mean, yes, you can follow the money. That's, that's a big part of it. But the real science is mathematics. You know, unless there's an algorithm that demonstrates cause, of, cause and effect and then quantifies that cause and effect, then it's only a model or an idea, right? It's not the real thing. Um, you know, respecting the individual, um, you know, they're, they're two things, protecting the family. Um, but, it, look, if I had to nail it in one thing, I think it's treating each other with respect and, and respecting other people's points of view, which the media uh, and, and social media has fueled this a lot, despite the fact that, you know, the alternative media really exists on social media. But, um, 
Uh, there seems to be a, an intolerance of a dissenting view today, um, and that is very concerning. Um, and look, the, the case of Julian Assange is a classic example. Um, and that, in my view, there's no doubt in my view that's been done to send a message to journalists and that total line, um, or, or we'll, we'll come after you. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, free, you know, and I don't like to use the word freedom too much because it gets thrown around like confetti, but, you, you know, there needs to be tolerance of other people's point of views and, and, and an ability to put those points of view across without being, you know, intimidated for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it needs to be more conversational and less, less attacking, but even trying to get people to have a conversation can be really difficult because it, people get very emotional and I think people are a lot more emotional and reactive than they are in terms of just control and thinking and logical, which can be difficult when it comes to having constructive conversations that can actually move the country forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, oh, yeah, I agree with what you say there. I don't know. Yeah, I should have, should, have, should have finished that with a question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I kind of just sat there. That I, it's thinking out loud, isn't it? It's thinking and yeah, reacting yeah. out loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Totally love it. Hey, I just think you're wonderful and you have such a brilliant mind and fantastic ideas. And I hope more of Australia falls in love with you and starts to understand where your heart is at because you're clearly a very dedicated and passionate person. And I'm really thankful that you took the time to chat with me today. So thank you so much. Thanks, Chantelle. And can I give a big shout out to all my friends in New Zealand? Uh, When I travelled overseas for that long period of time, I drank a lot of beer with uh, a lot of New Zealanders and I had very good memories of of the friendships I made. So uh, take care of New Zealand. Oh, that's brilliant. All right. See you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You're listening to The Chantal Baker Show. And today we've been throwing it over to Australia, trying to understand what is happening politically there and also what is happening with the independent media. Our next interviewee is a man called Real Rakshan. Now, Rakshan is an independent media personality. He travels around mainly Melbourne and does many interviews. He attends Antifa riots and he tries to get to the core of the issues surrounding different vaccination policies that they've put into Australia. He's Sri Lankan, but he's been called a racist. He's worked alongside Avi, who is a Jew that's been called a Nazi. It's been pretty extreme for both of them over in Australia. So welcome Rakshan to Reality Check Radio. Rakshan, thank you so much for visiting New Zealand and working so hard to bring a light to what's been going on here. I know you've been doing a lot of work over in Melbourne, but how did you even get into the role of independent media? Where did this begin for you? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chantal. It's great to be here in New Zealand. Uh, Look, for me, a lot of this, what I'm doing, has been instigated by what's happened in Melbourne during our lockdowns and, I guess, um, all the things that went down during the pandemic. So myself, I'm a business owner, so I work in the wedding industry. And a lot of people make fun of me for being a wedding photographer and now slash journalist, but you know, that's something that I love to do. And um, I've been doing that for about 10 years. But uh, you know, the wedding industry was hit really hard um, during the lockdowns in Melbourne. Uh, we're usually the first industry to be shut down and usually the last to open during our rolling lockdowns because you know, weddings is where people get together. Families come from all around the country, for instance, and gather. And, that's one thing the government likes to shut down first because that would, you know, according to them, fix problems. So having that uh, time at home um, really allowed me to kind of explore other parts of my 
uh, life that I've had interest in, which is uh, one party's politics. So uh, it really allowed me to focus on that and kind of go out there and start making content about issues that were close to me. You're in Melbourne and famously have Dan Andrews as a premier who was notoriously tyrannical for some yeah. of the decisions he made. Yeah. What were the, some of the hardest parts of those decisions? Like where, where did it really hit home for you that you've yeah. gone too far? Look, you'll find a lot of people in Victoria and Melbourne and all across Australia, and it's probably the same in New Zealand, most people are happy to kind of you know have that community sense and do what needs to be done for the community and go along with what their politicians and governments tell them to do. I think what really hit a sore point in Melbourne, myself and for many others, when we saw that there wasn't accountability for a lot of the decisions that were being made, there wasn't transparency about why these decisions were being made. You know, for instance, famously in Melbourne, there was a time when you could go to a brothel, but you couldn't go to a nightclub. Like why these kind of things were being done and what predicated these decisions weren't really made clear to the public. And, um, you know, we had a lot of issues where government, it was obvious they made mistakes but they were not willing to front up to the public. And a lot of the businesses, like my business and many other businesses, had to bear the brunt of these decisions, but we had politicians who you know, just walked away from it. So I think that's what kind of became a sore point initially. There were some scenes here that shocked a lot of Kiwis, including the drone that would follow people in the park in mm. Melbourne. Did you see anything like that in the city? Yeah, so I didn't personally see these kind of drones and stuff, but there was a lot of those things kind of going on. I think the government and the police, they got kind of very, you know, creative <laughs> in, a <laughs> very, very, in a very authoritarian way. You know, it's like the looking at the textbooks from the uh, CCP or something and thinking, oh, which things can we try out on the people to uh, manage this? And is that where you think they got some of these ideas from the CCP, or where do you think some of the? Yeah, I mean, I say it jokingly, but you know, a lot of the things that we saw were very authoritarian, were things that we've never seen in kind of our free societies that were happening in our countries, right? I think that's what shocked a lot of people, mm -hmm. the way in which these things were introduced. Like it was just like, hey we've got to start doing this now, you know, we've got to start doing drone surveillance. Uh, you've got to accept it because that's the, that's the way it is now. And I think the fact that they were just thrown onto people without that uh, consultation, without uh, giving the reasoning for it properly, um, that was the issue. In a political sense, how do the premiers work? Is it kind of like a council for that state? Yeah, so because uh, the way the structure of Australia is set up, we have the different states. So. Daniel Andrews would probably be similar to Jacinda Ardern here, but she's just running the whole of New Zealand, where Daniel Andrews is responsible for just for Victoria. But again, Victoria is a big state. Mm -hmm. But then we had other states who had different rules to us. So we had our, in our country, from state to state, the rules were different. So you know, a lot of people would ask, what's that science based on? Like, is it consistent throughout the country? So we did have this thing where the federal government kind of put together a national cabinet and all the premiers would meet up and try to have some sort of consensus in terms of the, the rules that they would implement. But even with that, you did see a lot of fracturing around, you know, who was responsible for what, you know, federal law, does it over, override, you know, state law, a lot of these issues. And I think we really got to see how much power is concentrated in the premier of Victoria and uh, people that weren't you know, exposed to politics before, might have never known who Daniel Andrews was in Victoria, because that's kind of the laid-back culture in Victoria. But now everyone knows what Looking back, is. who was the best Premier of, of, the, of which state? Like, which, which state did it right, or did it the best? <laughs> oh, look, if you ask any of the people from different states in Victor uh, Australia, they would tell you that Premier is pretty bad. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't anyone that got it, like, right or perfect, um, because we did have that kind of federal overarching response as well. 
Um, there was, you know, Victoria was probably the most hard hit state, um, followed by, I think, Queensland, um, and then maybe New South Wales. And of course, Western Australia is a bit crazy as well, that they're kind of telling us to put faith in what we're doing. Um, you know, this is the best that we think is going to turn out. But uh, after a while, we saw that that wasn't really the case, right? So being, you know, being humans and being wanting to know, right? It's hard for us not to have those answers answered. I think that's what really prepped me to kind of go out there and see, because, you know, the narrative from the politicians was being backed up by the narrative from our media, by the mainstream media. And they weren't asking the most fundamental basic questions. But if you went down and you spoke to your friends um, what, back then what on... What are some of those questions? Oh, look, just, just, I'm just saying in general, like any fundamental questions, like you, you could see that there was a disconnect between what people were experiencing at home. Like, for instance, the, the issues that people were having um, during lockdowns with, you know, mental health issues or, you know, people being told that they can't, you know, go out of a certain radius around their house and all these things. Then there, those were issues that were, people were talking about in the public. But... Within the media itself, they were brushing over those things. And it was always about this kind of pushing gov government narratives and pushing the propaganda and fear. Um, and I think when you had a general conversation with a friend on a Zoom call back then or at a park or something, you'd be kind of on the same page, but it wasn't being represented in the media. What, are, what is it like with independent media in Australia and even in Melbourne? Is, is there much independent media? How many how many people seem to follow them? Yeah. Or is it very very much based on the mainstream narrative? Oh, look, there is a lot of independent media in Australia, uh, particularly in Melbourne. And a lot of it arose during these kind of uh, testing and trying times. What is your reason for not wearing a mask? Because I'm talking on my, doing my job as media. Could someone grab his name and address it? I think the public there is uh, open to independent media. Um, they're happy to consume independent media. And it's not so much uh, in the sense that, oh, this is like the single source of truth. Uh, it's more so, it's a different perspective, right? Um, and, you know, for me, I found that during my time covering these issues, people were just tuning into what I was doing because it was just like, they weren't seeing it anywhere else. You know what I mean? They weren't seeing it anywhere else. And that in itself is shocking because it's not too hard for these, these, these companies in Australia or these media stations like our government runs um, ABC, for instance. They have massive budgets. And for them to not go out there and actually cover issues like people who are angry about lockdowns or whatever it is, like it's just, uh, you know, I think it's unbecoming of what they should be when they're representing the people as a media organisation. Why do you think it's so important to have independent media? Again, in these times, we see that the power of the state, uh, the power of um, corporations, um, it's particularly when they get around a rallying point um, and they tell you that this is the way that things are going to be, um, it shows you how disastrous it can be because having that uh, independent perspective, uh, hearing people's opinions, hearing people's voices helps us inform the way that decisions should be made. So if we had more uh, you know, information coming out from other experts or other doctors, which was you know, very seriously censored during um, these times, it might have changed the, the course of the trajectory of the decisions that were made. But instead, businesses and stuff had to suffer because we were only getting a single source of information. What did some of the censorship around the doctors and scientists over there look like? How did they censor them? Look, uh, mainly the, the mainstream media would not, um, you know, uh, I guess, show any of the interviews, wouldn't interview people like this, right? They would only interview people who were coming from the state, 
who were authorized or who were uh, on song with a certain message. You know, like whenever someone came on, it was so and so doctor from, and they're also a special envoy to the WHO or something. You know what I mean? Like it's this kind of same uh, group of people almost. Uh, sure, they're you know professionals in their own right, and they're they're very learned and they know what they're talking about. But we're hearing from these other experts. Uh, who are sometimes the leading in their field from different parts of the world and why is their view not being shown to us like you know what are they trying to tell us like we can't make up our own minds so that's the issue there. They had a very similar thing here where they had about five TV experts and I call them TV experts because they'd come out they'd be on the TV but they never actually treated the virus they didn't actually have patients that they were treating at that time and I found that unusual yeah. that you were bringing in experts but they hadn't actually dealt with the patients Whereas when we had other doctors who had dealt with thousands of patients and they were saying, hey, there are treatments, yep. this is what they look like, they weren't even allowed to be heard and yep. people were pretending that all, we, all the only option that we had here was yep. to wait for a jab. And yep. that, that to me sent conflicting messages. How wide was that group of experts that they used over in Melbourne? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty repetitive experts. I mean, these guys, they had, had a good thing going. <laughs> a lot of TV appearances. <laughs> uh, I don't know about money, but it was good for their, uh, you know, their brand, I guess. Um, they had a lot of exposure to the public. Um, some of them, you know, um, became like uh, even our chief health officer in um, in Melbourne, Brett Sutton. You know, they became like household symbols. You know what I mean? Like, which is fine. Uh, but when you start seeing the same people, like, there is not that they're not going to check themselves. If, even if they like, I, I saw experts that were saying one thing at the start, and then they were saying something else a few months down the track. But they weren't really being held accountable by the people that were interviewing them for the things they said before. And, you know, a, a serious question would have been like, hey, what you said, you know, this would do this, um, you know, three months ago. That never happened. So how can we trust what you're saying now? Just very basic questions, but they were allowed a pass. Well, what they say is the science has changed, don't they? Yeah. However, I, I think the people that have been in very independent of government and put forward independent advice, the science seems to actually validate what those people said at the beginning. And now we're two years on and it's still the same advice and it's yeah. still... And it seems now the advice from the TV experts is changing to more reflect what these independent experts have been saying the whole yep. time. So yep. I find the whole science science changes. Absolutely it does. Yes. And as, as we get more knowledge, things do evolve. However, if you can see these independent ones had the same advice at the beginning as they do now, and now everyone's starting to follow that, surely you should start to question what we label an expert. Yes, that's the, you're right. <laughs> you're right. But uh, what what I'm finding now is that those same experts that were maybe bright at the beginning, they're being still being maligned mm. because there is this uh, hesitancy now for governments and for health institutions and stuff to not admit to the faults that they made. You know, it's, it's almost like a cover up. It's almost like, hey, you know, forget the past. Uh, don't worry about all the things we said. What we're saying now is right. Um, don't worry about the people back then that were correct. You know, don't worry about them. They're still wrong. Yeah. They're still wrong today. That, that's what's happening. And, you know, you're finding that if you try to go correct the record now with this, with those same experts, people will still turn up and say, oh, but they can't be trusted, those people, you know, and they actually have the track record to prove that they were kind of right at the start. Right. So it's, it's, it's crazy how it's all being manipulated. And there is a lot that's gone into doing that, I think. How did you see New Zealand? Because being over in Melbourne, I'm sure you would have just seen news and things of what was going mm. on here. What was your perception of New Zealand before you arrived? Yeah, in, in terms of the pandemic, In I terms guess. of the pandemic, yeah, yeah COVID Sure. So a lot of portrayal of New Zealand at the start was kind of like a model, model country. 
uh, <laughs> model state, uh, you know, sorry, not state, country, a model, um, you know, prime minister doing what needs to be done for her citizens and a leading example to the world. And uh, I think a lot of ways um, it was heralded as like a model that maybe should be followed elsewhere as well. I'm not saying that was always a narrative that was showing in, in, in Australia, but you know, it was a very positive New Zealand. We could see the early stages of what we had gone through uh, transpiring here. And um, is, would that be a correct kind of way to look at things? Because yeah, I would definitely say we were further behind you guys. Yeah. And I, I noticed, like, obviously, we and we had a protest in February that lasted 23 days yeah. in Wellington at our parliament, which was a huge moment for New Zealand because New Zealand is a very... Um, we're very compliant because we're quite relaxed people. We don't really like to get upset at anyone. We yeah. don't like arguments. We're pretty... We're, we always say we're just really chill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As Kiwis, we're just chill. We just want to have a beer and relax and yeah. go to work, come home, not worry about stuff. So for Kiwis to get mad enough that they physically camped at Parliament, yeah. um, that was huge. That was a, a, a massive defining moment for our country, I believe, and for the... I guess what was on the hearts of the citizens, it was really big, but then the police came in and they were violent towards people. The people would react back. And I mean, I can understand from the police's perspective, they're given instructions of what to do and mm. they follow them. But mm. from my perspective, I'm always about the people. And I was saying, if you just said to the government, you actually have to come out and at least have a conversation before we go and do this to the people, mm. everything would have been settled. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I struggled watching all of that and watching the violence, but I'd seen Melbourne, I mean, six months earlier, have quite violent protests mm. where you saw old ladies getting pushed over, assaulted, and lots of the rubber bullets fired at them. Like, yeah. When was the first violent protest like, that the police were violent against the people in Melbourne? How long ago was that? Yeah, look, you'll find, like, it, there was a gradual descent into the, the extreme kind of violence we saw in Melbourne towards the end. But consistently throughout most of the protests, the, the interactions between the public and the police were not good. Um, and the portrayal of protesters from the very onset was very negative by the media. Um, it, was, it seemed very deliberate. And that's one of the actual reasons that I actually started going out to actually cover these issues. Because what I was watching on the television and what I was seeing people talking about on the streets while protesting it didn't match the way that it was being portrayed. And uh, until you actually go out there and you're amongst the protesters, um, you know, that's when I first kind of realized, hey, these are just, they're just like me. They're just ordinary Australians, ordinary Victorians. And they're out here because they're frustrated with their government. And as it built up, the police response um, also built up, you know, and that's when you would have seen a lot of the more kind of violent interactions between members of the public and the police. Uh, we didn't really have any kind of sit-ins as such as you had at your parliament because of you know how large Australia is but um, you know those moments there during those protests when I would see the police you know pulling out weapons for instance and then firing rubber bullets and these kind of things I'd never thought I would see in uh, Australia you know I would never thought I would ever see that in Melbourne <laughs> and uh, I come from a background where you know we I come from South Asia my, my parents are originally from Sri Lanka and if someone was to tell me that would happen in Sri Lanka, I'd be like, yeah, of course, it's going to happen there. Because those things have happened historically uh, when politicians want to shut the public down. They'll do things like this, even using live rounds. Uh, in Australia, though, I thought, nah, they're not going to fire on people because they're protesting against the government about lockdowns. I mean, everyone's in this together, supposedly. But the fact that the police did turn around and do that, it really showed you that things had escalated to such a level people's frustration had built up to such a level that the only way politicians could think of dealing with that 
was to shoot on people. Mm. And uh, that really shows a lack of leadership. And I blame government for that, not the people. Were people quite shocked when they watched that back home? Or was the general public on board with the mainstream media messaging of all protesters are bad and they should be vilified? No, I think there was a moment where most people were shocked. I think there was a moment where most people were shocked. But you saw the government and the media and the authorities kind of come together to try to see how we can switch this all around, you know, yeah. paint this in a negative light. And there is a lot of work that they do to kind of make sure that people feel that it's because of these people that things are prolonged. It's because of these people that things are the way they are. Mm. And the, the, the reality is the, the reason that we have mandates or lockdowns or whatever it is, is usually because of mistakes made by governments. But it's easy for them to look at, you know, show a group of people protesting and say, hey, look, these people aren't following the rules. Blame them. And, uh, they use a lot of slur terms against protesters here in New Zealand. What are some of the slur terms that they use over in Australia to try and define and categorise the protests? Yeah. I mean, look, everyone's called anti-vaxxer, yeah. uh, conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, um, kooka. That's, that's a new term that they Lots use. Of, what is that? A, a kooka. kooka. Yeah. What is that? I don't know. They call it kooka. kooka. Like they're cooked in the head, so that's why they're oh, out there. Lovely. So like, yeah. Aussie's <laughs> just being kind. Yeah. Just, <laughs> It's very derogatory, the terms yeah. that they use to describe people. And that's what I find shocking because, you know, for a lot of the protests, especially the larger protests that I attended, these were like people from all backgrounds, uh, young, old, you know, different parts of Australia, different um, ethnic backgrounds. And uh, they were there because, not really even because of vaccines and stuff like this, they were there because their businesses were hurting. Uh, they were at the brink of losing, you know, something that they've put their life into. Uh, they couldn't see their families, you know, or they had families stuck overseas. All these kind of issues, right? So the portrayal of it as just conspiracy theorists who don't want to take a vaccine and they're all anti—they're all, you know, anti-vaxxers because of all this stuff—is it's just nonsense. I mean, the anti-vax thing didn't really come into the Melbourne uh, protest debates as such until it was mandated. That's when you saw a lot more people speaking up against their desire not to be forced into doing something. Mm. Um, the original kind of protest really I saw was more so around the fact that they weren't happy with the <laughs> lockdowns, you know yeah. what I mean? So it's a mix of things. And I think the portrayal is just a one, uh, you know, this ca cartoonish portrayal of people as um, agitators and they just hate the government because they're anti-vax or something like this is, is, is nonsense. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I've had that said about me and I actually was going to get the vaccine, but then they mandated it and I was like, uh, I was always like, I'm just going to wait and see if there's like more side effects than people know about. Then they mandated it, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Just purely on an ethical basis. I was like, no, you can't force people into doing that. Yeah. And I can't imagine the hurt people carry when they were forced into doing something and having something put in their body that they weren't comfortable with. Yeah. But for a lot of the people I spoke with at the protest here, a lot of them were actually double jabbed or even triple, but they yeah. were just saying, we just don't agree with the mandates. Yeah. And so they, they keep changing the terminology to just yeah. kind of suit how they want to present people. That's right. Um, but here they love the white supremacy argument. Yeah. It's everyone is a white supremacist if yeah. you don't agree with the government, no matter what the colour of their skin is. Yeah. And it's, that, that's a funny one that I always I think about a lot. Well, I think, where on earth can you call someone? Yeah. Well, you know, if you've got a room of 10 people and they're all completely ethnically diverse and they've got a common goal against the mandates, mm. how can you validate calling that group racist? Yeah, I mean, it's nonsense. That whole angle that was taken, and that's a lot of it's pushed by, I would say, the extreme... Um, far left <laughs> and their work, work way of looking at certain things that, oh, this is racism, that's why they're out there, <laughs> they're racist. And uh, these people, even though they look like, you know, they shouldn't be racist because they're, you know, ethnics or something from a different country, but they've been like 
fooled by the white person to go out there. It's exactly so, oh, it's word for word what yeah. they said in the, in the sort of documentary thing they put out. Yeah, and I so thought, oh, mate, how insulting is it that? Is, or how racist it's, is that? It's, it's, it's very insulting. Like even for myself, I'm called le- I'm called a um, you know, even your newspaper here called me a far right activist or uh, far right agitator or you know, um, almost like saying a white supremacist type thing, right? And it's ridiculous because we're not that. And you will find a lot of the resistance in Australia to mandates and a lot of this nonsense that the government were doing was coming from the migrant communities, mm. was coming from the uh, ethnic communities, because uh, they don't put up with this type of thing, with, even with their governments. Sure, the consequences are different in their countries, but in, you know, generally our communities don't put up with this kind of uh, forced type of thing. Do you think it's um, because they've seen governments overstep and overreach before yeah. and, and yeah. New Zealand hasn't really seen any of that and also yes. to, to an extent yeah. hasn't really seen that either so yeah. maybe it's the first time no, that I agree Western with cultures are going oh wow this is a problem. Yeah sure definitely like a lot of the protesters in Melbourne were from Eastern Europe uh, they had backgrounds where they had seen this type of encroachment on their lives from governments and that's why they were there because they didn't want to see that happening um, and a lot of people that have already seen this in other parts of the world they already know the signs of it. They already know kind of what it looks like and what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this um, naivety amongst Western nations, uh, New Zealand and Australia being amongst them, where they believe that they are somehow above all that, yeah. that their governments would never do these kind of things to them and they would never act not in their best interests. And look, part of me, I still believe that's the case. These are wonderful countries we live in. New Zealand, Australia, they're amazing places when you compare it to the, the rest of the world. But we are seeing a tendency now uh, for our governments to go down that path where they stop respecting certain norms that we have, mm-hmm. certain standards that we live by, um, you know, whether it's the constitution or you know, which, whether it's just basic understanding of, of human rights. We're seeing more and more governments in the West ignore those things. And I think the pandemic has really brought that to light, just how far they can go. And uh, I think that's why people are concerned. Like even, you know, your average person will look at this now and be like, actually, yeah, we can turn out like, you know, mm. that country that's not that great. The protest that you attended here, there was a, a, an anti-protest protest that went on with yeah. a group of local Antifa people. Yeah. What was your perception of that? Have you guys seen that in Australia as well? The yes. Anti-protest protests? Yeah. How, how was that experience? Yeah, look, it's very interesting watching these anti-fascist groups and look, they have a right to protest and they have a right so to say and do whatever they want to do. I respect them, their ability to do that. But it's very interesting that a lot of these groups take on the side of, a lot of the times, the same governments that they disagree with on other issues. You know? But for this particular issue, because for whatever reason, it's like the government is correct. Listen to the government, listen to the corporations, listen to Big Pharma, because we're on their side for this issue. And if you ask them on other topics related to this, they will say, oh, no, we can't trust the government. The government's doing this, this and this to people. It's systemic racism, it's systemic this. But then if you believe in all these things, why can't you believe that maybe the system is also in this, in this particular issue working against the people? Mm-hmm. So really, it's more of something that they've chosen to get behind because they believe there's a you know, far right or white supremacist boogeyman. <laughs> that's making people uh, you know, not want to wear masks or disagree with mandates or something. You know, they fully believe it's something to do with racism and it's bizarre. And one of the things I saw yesterday, which is the same thing I've seen in Australia, is a lot of these Antifa groups, compared to the other protesters, are mostly made up of very young, uh, you know, for lack of a better description, white. What? Um, <laughs> no, white, uh, uni student types. Um, 
and people who maybe have you know, the very thing they speak about, privilege. And what I saw about in the protest groups, uh, and I'm very new to New Zealand, but I saw a, a lot more people who were looked indigenous to New Zealand and a lot more diversity, a lot more people who were of um, you know, different backgrounds, families, a lot more children. Whereas with the other group that were saying that these people are racist and white supremacists, it was mostly just, you know, people, um, you know, young white people telling people, you know, like, oh, your life is great, listen to the government. Uh, and it's just crazy. And I think, look, the media kind of doesn't do enough in terms of asking those groups questions, mm-hmm. asking them why they believe these things. It's very easy for them just to be like, oh, well, they agree with the government this time. So let's just leave it at that. Have you tried to talk with those groups before? Have you been successful in trying to talk to them before? No. So I have tried to uh, cover one of their protests in Melbourne, and they are very. Uh, that was also an anti-racism protest, and they're very hostile. So even. What do you mean by hostile? Like what happened? Oh, like they would literally want to attack you, type thing. Um, you know, I'm like on a white hit list for them. Even coming, you know, I would see these groups sharing information about me, saying, "Watch out for this person. Don't talk to this person." And you know, for groups that talk about you know, being anti-racist and all these kind of things. When in the Melbourne protest, I went up to them and said, look, you guys are talking about anti-racism. I'm a, a, a reporter from like, you know, a different background. You know, I'm not white. Uh, tell me like why, why you guys are protesting. And you know, it's, not, it's, not about, it's not about that. It's, the, it's more about ideology. It's not about race for these groups. It's, if you don't agree with them, it doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from. You're like a, I don't think uh, there's... Almost no point talking to them, but I still think it's important to try, but I would say there's no point because they're very hard set in their ways. Yeah, I've tried tried to talk to them as well, and I I always invite people on for a conversation because obviously I I find that they do do that. They share things in groups, and then they go out and like group trolls and try and like get your content shut down, or they just try and say horrible things that are really untrue, but they'll do it in like a massive group of them. And so I'm always like, I'm not going to tolerate abuse, but come and have a conversation. You know, like you disagree with me, come and have a conversation. Like, here's the email address, let's set up an interview. It's just any time we can go live so you're not going to be edited, just actually make that step to be bold. And if that's what you truly believe, back it with thought and back it with the process. But they just won't. Besides some of the the leaders of these groups, they don't really believe in what they're doing up there. A lot of the people that are up there, the the young ones, they have no idea about the real world. Do you and think it's more group thought then? Group thought and they just feel like there is a boogeyman and they've been indoctrinated in such a way that they believe that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the only way that they can then look at a, a protest where there's a large majority of people who are um, indigenous New Zealand and say that they're you know, far-right Nazis or you know, white supremacists and stuff. I think that's the only way that you can become like that because they don't understand the world. They don't understand that even in countries where everyone you know, looks like me, even in Sri Lanka, for instance, people would argue about things like lockdowns and mandates. It's a very human issue. Mm-hmm. So it's not about race. The fact they try to bring race into it and all these other things into it, it shows you that they don't understand the issue. And even if they did understand the issue, they want to muddy the waters because they want to feed into a certain narrative. You came over here, we were meant to be coming here with Avi Yemeni, who's a friend of yours and a fellow reporter at Rebel, at Rebel News. Why do you think New Zealand didn't want to let him into the country? Look, I think there was a bit of a build-up with that article from the NZ Herald. Uh, I would call it a sensational hit piece, uh, where they kind of take things that are out there in the open, but then they sensationalise it and you know, add their own flavouring to it to try to get a response from government. Um, and I think that kind of put uh, Avi and myself on some sort of list or some sort of block or something like this, right? 
And uh, so unfortunately, RB Yemeni um, was unable to um, come through the airport. And, um, you know, I had the same issue at the airport where when my passport was scanned initially, it was blocked by NZ Immigration. And the staff, the Qantas staff, were telling me they'd never seen this kind of block before on an Australian passport. And is there anything, is there any reason why they would block you? Is there anything in your past, anything like that? No, no, nothing in my past. Um, yeah, there's nothing. There's no reason besides maybe what they saw in that article, which blows my mind again because this is a liberal democracy, uh, New Zealand. It's meant, it's meant to be. And to think that they would not be open to having the outside world uh, critique them, uh, particularly from a journalistic perspective, um, and then you know take the word of some newspaper article and use that as a reason to stop someone's you know visa or whatever it is, whatever. I don't even think I need a visa to come from Australia with Australian passport. No. You just kind of come and you can work and do these things, right? But to think that that would motivate them to kind of do these things, uh, it's very childish in a way. Like it's very uh, you know I hate to use this word, but it's very pathetic on the part of NZ Immigration because it shows a lack of, you know, it's just immaturity in a way. Uh, if this happened when I was going to like China, for instance, or I was going to like Iran or Taliban controlled, controlled Afghanistan, I'd be like, yes, I expect that to happen. But to see the New Zealand government kind of cave in that way and do these kind of weird things, uh, it shows you that, you know, there are influences within these organizations, whether it's NZ Immigration or the government, whatever it is, where they take to heart what's being said in the newspapers. Yeah. The, the PR that, you know, the certain PR around certain things, like all these things matter to them, when really that's not their, that shouldn't be their main focus. <laughs> they have other things to do, yeah. other actual real, you know, criminals and real yeah. issues to, to deal with. But they're getting caught up in these type of issues, which shows you even a small group of these kind of anti-fascist people that were really pushing these stories and pushing this these people to stop us from coming have influence and it shouldn't be that way. Do you think what you're doing and what people like me are doing is making a difference in the world? Difference as in I think it's uh, difference I would say it's needed in the world. Um, difference is hard to really um, you know give a <laughs> give give an explanation for that but I think it's needed. Um, you'll find that you know, in any country where there's some sort of issue, there are groups and people that speak out, and it's very important. You know, I've, I'm seeing right now in, in Afghanistan that's under the control of the Taliban, you're seeing their protests here and there pop up by women because they're being restricted again, right? Their rights are being restricted. Now, if those women, for instance, used a platform like Facebook to spread their message, we would applaud that you know, in the West. We would say, oh, bravo, good, good for them. Right, but they're they're going against the law of the Taliban right now. They're they're going against the law of the country, right? But we are saying no. We, they need to do that. But in our own countries, in New Zealand or in Australia, when independent media, when uh, people that have a different perspective to the government want to speak out, these same organisations will shut those people down. Mm. And that shows you just how far you know the West is morally bankrupt because it can criticise the rest of the world. But once you start looking internally, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. And they'll use the very tools that, that they tell you will help spread freedom and all these messages around the world against the people in their own countries. So it's a shame. Last question. What would be your one piece of advice for someone that would love to be a real Rakshan back in their country or even here? What would your piece of advice be? Yeah, look, I think for people uh, in terms of advice, I think just, you can just go do it, right? Um, I didn't, I didn't take go, Nike slogan. yeah, take the Nike <laughs> slogan, <do> <laughs> yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, 
you know, I didn't start doing this in a way that oh, I want people following me. And the thing, I didn't do that for that, those reasons. And I think I still don't do it for those reasons. Um, you know, if you have a passion about something, whatever it is, and you want to go out there and do this, we live in a world today where we have that ability. Um, access to media in terms of social media makes that possible, of course, but also access to technology, cameras, you know, our phone. Um, there's a very, I'm going to plug a documentary here, but there's, a, there's an amazing documentary that you can probably watch. It's called Riding with Fire, and it's about these, um, these journalists in, um, in India, from the, the, the lowest caste in India, these women journalists, and just about how they're going out with their phones and recording stuff around them and like reporting these stories, right? These people, women can't speak, they, they've never used a phone before, you know what I mean? Like, but people can go out there and do that and it's making a difference in their communities. So if people try to push, push back and hold you down and tell you, like they tell me, Rukshan, you're just a wedding photographer, you know, stick in your lane. I think that's the wrong way of looking at these things. If you want to go out there and do independent reporting, creating content, do these things, I think we should all, um, you know, believe in ourselves that we can do that. And you'll find that people are out there that will support you. People are out there that are looking for your content, and um, I think that's why they're, you know, maybe shutting people down. <laughs> that might be why they may be shutting your Facebook down. And you know, even me for Facebook, I don't think I'll be there on much longer as well. So that's kind of the way things are going, right? So, but yeah, regardless of that, don't back down, and we have to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. I always double down. That's what I say. I say if they push back on you, double down. Don't cave in. You've got to double down because or else. No one will have a voice. If everyone caves, no one has a voice. 100%. Well, thank you so much. No I love chatting to you, and thank you for coming here, and thank you for caring about New Zealand, because I know it means a lot to me, and it does mean a lot to everyone else as well. Thank you for having me on, Chantel. Thank you. That's it for today on the Chantal Baker Show. You've listened to Senator Gerard Rennick, a Liberal Party senator over in Australia. We've also had the real Rakshan on, who is an independent media personality over in Australia. He works with the likes of Avi Yemeni, Rebel News, and many, many others that have attended Antifa riots, attended vaccine riot, vaccine protests, sorry, not riots, vaccine protests. And it's been a really interesting time for them over in Melbourne with extremely strict COVID policies and a very strict Premier, Daniel Andrews. I used to live in Melbourne for a while and watching the scenes unfold back here in New Zealand, watching the scenes unfold in Melbourne, uh, including old ladies being shoved to the ground, people hit with rubber bullets. I mean, it was absolutely insane the last few years of what has happened in Melbourne. But there's a very there's a very big divide, I would say, in Melbourne between um, more liberal thinking and then more like radical leftist thinking. Melbourne is a very artistic city. It has amazing food, amazing amazing uh, festivals and things like that. It's got a lot going on, Melbourne, but it's very leftist. And you'll notice that when it comes time for the protests, there's a lot of Antifa people that will come up um, and be very aggressive to people that are protesting that are more centre or centre-right. And it does cause a lot more conflict than what we're used to here in New Zealand. So it's been great to see the reports coming out from the likes of people such as Real Rakshan to understand why these people are reacting like that and then also to speak with Senator Gerard Rennick to understand why the politicians are not standing up for the liberal values that so many Australians hold. This has been The Chantal Baker Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you have an amazing rest of your weekend, and we'll be back next Friday at 4 o'clock with more. This is The Chantal Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. 
RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio.